Hello, everyone. My name is Ben Gilberti, and I'll be your tech host for today. Your real host will be Calvin Harris, who will introduce his guests for today. I met Calvin at the Prosperos way back in 1971, though he has been a member of the Prosperos since 1967. Prosperos is the school of ontology. Ontology is the science of being. And Calvin is a great expression of the energy and spontaneity of being. Calvin does many things in many places. He teaches the main classes of the Prosperos translation and RHS, and also does seminars and workshops in Arizona, California, Michigan, Oregon, and Washington State. Translation is a process for discovering the truth about anything, and RHS is a process that does the same, but dealing with emotions. In addition, Calvin is now teaching a preparatory mentorship program for those interested in becoming professional Prosperos mentors. So now I bring to you Calvin Harris. Hello, Calvin. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha is an interesting word. It has many meanings, but its roots and origins is buried deep within the Hawaiian mysticism. Aolo, meaning sharing, and in the present, in the now. Ha, meaning breath, which is known to them as also life, also energy. So I say to all of you, welcome to our sharing in the breath of life. The Prosperos has been in a rare situation of having a teacher who has created courses that for over 65 years have been used as an alchemy, understanding the elements of the indigenous people, Eastern mysticism, added to an understanding of Western tradition and science to articulate ideas on aspects of modern spirituality, <clears throat> to bring mankind to a resolution of true identity as consciousness, conscious of consciousness, of consciousness. So <laughs> the man that I'm introducing to you today is Sam Morris a life coach that is known as the Zen warrior. Sam conducts a coaching and training program for high achieving professionals, 
who wish to embody in their next level of peace, purpose, and prosperity in their personal and professional life. So we're going to see how he does that. We will touch on concepts of identity, breath, aka life force, and perceived disabilities. So let me bring on Sam, Sam Morris. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much, Calvin. <clears throat> Thank you for the in introduction. It's wonderful to see all of you here today. It's good to have you here, and it's good reminding me of my breath. <laughs> Can you start by telling us a little about your history and maybe where that led to uh, a perceived disability? Yes, sure. Well, there's a lot there. Um, <clears throat> You know, going way back to childhood, I have uh, distinct recollections of feeling the, the sense of freedom that I think most of us feel as children. And I grew up on a blueberry farm in Maine. And I also recall as life progressed, seeing the freedom that we innately live with as children being really taken away by many people as they moved into adulthood and so much constraint that is fear-based and ego-driven. And I saw that a lot of people who were quote unquote successful we're not living in a fulfilled and free manner. And to me, that felt like uh, the, the ultimate waste of a life to lose one's sense of freedom and lose one's sense of fulfillment and, um, and to lose that childlike wonder and an appreciation for the magic of life. And I also saw that this was consistent with a lot of the ecological issues that we were having. And so I really had this inquiry into why, what that was all about. Now, uh, my interest turned me to Zen Buddhism when I was in college, and I could see that these, this, this deep and rich philosophical and psychological tradition had so much to say about why these problems exist. And these problems have existed for a long time. It was not just a modern problem. These problems have existed for thousands of years and never really fully been dealt with. And so in 1999, I, was, uh, I led a cycling trek across the United States for nine teenagers. I was an outdoor leader at the time. I was 23 years old in 1999. And uh, we biked 3,800 miles um, across some of the most gorgeous countryside, uh, 
It was the hardest thing that I'd ever taken on in my life. Uh, we camped every night, cooked all our own food, and we did a 3,800-mile bicycling trek in a little less than two months. Uh, I went back to the college that I was attending at the time. This was the summer of 99. And uh, thinking, wow, I'm, I may never go through something quite so challenging ever again. And uh, it was almost like I had planted seeds in the universe by thinking that thought, because only two and a half months later, I was in the backseat of a car driven by a drunk driver. He lost control of the car, went off the road and hit a big oak tree. And my body was right where the impact happened. And I broke my T12 vertebra and I became paralyzed from the waist down when that happened. And so that was close to 23 years ago, and I've been in a wheelchair since then, and uh, began the, the second stage of my life at that age. I had just turned 24 at the time. And so, uh, yeah, that's taught me a whole lot about the, about the application of this philosophical and psychological um, Taking, taking theory and concept of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, being in the moment, working with non-attachment, impermanence, and so forth, taking it from sort of a philosophical and psychological ideal and into real-world practice with one of the most dramatic and high-resolution experiences that a human being can go through, which is actually letting go of the attachment to the physical form being what I believed it should be. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot that goes on with that. How did you then go from that into creating um, your practice for, for others, um, your life coaching practice? And you have a yeah. unique way of, of doing that too, because you do bring in the your elements of of buddhist uh spirituality into that so can you That's kind right. of elaborate on that for us yeah so so uh my real uh, I, I i suppose what happened with me was the when i went through my healing process both physical psychological and emotional following my injury, that was a long process. And I had such a deep dive that never, it, it was the sort of thing that, that the healing process never really was over. And not that any healing process is over per se, but the, it was every moment of every day required so much of my attention to work with what was an incredibly traumatic and challenging scenario. And so I never got a break from the challenge. It was, it demanded everything that I had every moment of every single day. And it turned out actually that the paralysis itself wasn't the biggest disability. The biggest disability was developing um, wounds, these pressure ulcers, like bed sores from sitting in the wheelchair, which actually over the course of the years 
required me to be immobilized in hospital beds for over two years cumulatively. The longest stretch I ever spent immobilized in a hospital bed was seven and a half months. So I had this opportunity to really practice the taking the philosophical and psychological wisdom traditions and bringing them into practice. And some people might go to a monastery and practice in a monastery with meditation each day. Well, my monastery was the hospital bed. That was the circuit. That was the, the unintended, at least maybe, maybe on a soul level, it was intended, but unintended in terms of what I would choose the unintended restriction which then put me in a state where it was kind of like, I, I either have to do this and learn how to do this in this very almost impossibly restricted environment and maintain a sense of self and freedom, et cetera, or I just completely lose it and get depressed and anxious and everything else. So it was, it was my dojo or my monastery. That was the, the place where the restrictions were so severe that it required me to just be with myself on a very, very deep level on an ongoing basis. And I started getting reflections from others saying, I don't know how you do what you do. I have this little thing coming in my life. You know, my girlfriend left me six months ago and I still can't stop thinking about it. And then I look at you and I see what you're doing and how you're living. And you've got this smile on your face. You're full of joy and laughter and vitality and purposefulness. And, and I think, and I, and I think, well, if Sam can do what he's doing, then I can do what I need to do to overcome this challenge that I'm dealing with. And so it was when I'd heard that sentiment communicated to me, that, that acknowledgement that it was the reflection coming from outside and receiving that. And that I, at a certain point, I think it was late 2013, I was somewhat unsure of what my life was going to look like. What I didn't really have a career trajectory. I'd been in and out of hospitals and this and that, moved around a bunch, didn't really have a clear understanding of where I was going to go. But then when I started to see that reflection, I realized, oh, this is it. What I need to do is to essentially sort of reverse engineer the mindset practices that are innate in me. And then I've had an opportunity to practice over and over and over again and work on teaching other people how to adopt those same sort of principles into their own lives with their own challenges. And so then I really committed myself to the service, to being of service at that point. Yeah. Because we all have uh, these uh, perceived within ourselves disabilities. Um, as a life coach, what would be some of these perceived disabilities that the people that you work with come to you with? Well, everyone has their cross to bear. You know, it's... Um, it, for me, it's interesting because my own perceived disabilities were not the actual disability. So with, with my situation, my physical paralysis, if I look at it from the most objective standpoint, really from a witness consciousness, 
my physical paralysis is nothing more than an inconvenience. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's if I am completely objective with it. So anything that is paralyzing is a psychological or emotional perspective. It's a perspective-based thinking. It's saying, oh, because of this, then, then all of these other excuses sort of emerge from the, uh, the origin, the, the, the physical situation actually becomes sort of a scapegoat for the, the psychological or emotional things. And then I realized, so this is what's happening when someone goes through a divorce. This is what happens when someone's going through a career shift. This is what happens when someone doesn't really, they've, worked for success their entire lives, but they haven't cert sought a deeper meaning in their life. This is what happens when someone holds on to childhood wounding that at the ages of 50, 60 or plus is still presenting itself on some unconscious level and impacting their decision-making. So it's really no different um, that it's all the same thing, really. It's it's the the sense of separation from spirit. And when my trauma happened, there was a certain degree to which I felt separated from my former self, my former identity, and also a sense of separation from spirit. So I I know what that feels like, and I also know that that's nothing more than an illusion. And we are never separated from spirit. We cannot be separated from spirit. And so um, I re realized that my own situation was perhaps just a more higher resolution form of what every human being suffers from. Right. There is that, um, that both in your practice and in our practice with translation and RHS, we're wanting to quiet the mind, the breath almost, to take a breath. Mm -hmm. so that the soul will speak. Mm -hmm. Let your existence speak for it reaches the core of your soul. There is this out and back situation that goes on, this feedback loop that goes on with higher consciousness in our brain. And it's allowing us to quiet the mind. Shh. And sometimes in breathing alone, that happens. So, yeah. So I can kind of see where that uh, would take place and why that would be so important within your practice. Mm -hmm. One thing that, uh, that I'm always reminded of is that we are all students of life and are always learning what new insights that come to us. I think recently uh, in one of your posts, you had talked about uh, being intentionalist. This was a new hmm. concept that had come to you or something. Would you, would you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say exactly new, but something that was resonating on a deeper level than what I have um, I think, I think, you know, how sometimes concept will come in or something will come in and we understand it, but then there's sort of a time where we hear it again and it just makes even more sense this time. It's like, 
when it's like when you read a book that you've read a few years ago and then you pick it up again and it has a, a yet another level of meaning to you. Um, this was in a conversation with a, a wonderful friend uh, named Prince Stash. He's an actual prince and a wonderful guy who's Google him sometime. You'll find out this guy's had such a rich and extraordinary life. But in conversation with him recently, he said uh, that he's intentionless. And in fact, he's frequently said that because we worked together in a personal development group. And uh, as part of the, as how I facilitate the group, one thing that I do is I check in with people's intention as we begin each session. And he always says, I'm intentionless. And, you know, sometimes we kind of joke about it or get a little bit of laughter out of it, but it was really sinking in on another level. He said, you know, by the time you're my age, he's 79. He says, when you're watering the garden, when you're watering the plants, you must be watering the plants, not thinking about anything else on your to-do list. And I thought that's really beautiful and profound. And I think that this is one of the, um, really somewhat dysfunctional aspects of the personal development movement that there tends to be such a strong focus on intention and purpose. Um, and I've used, I use this term, even in the, the intro that you, uh, you had about me, the term purpose came up. And I do believe that there is sole purpose that is something that is uh, really important to examine. And I do believe in the power of intention and yet I also believe simultaneously in this intentionlessness. This is very much consistent with the, the teachings of the Tao to simply be with nature's intention versus thinking that there is some sort of mental intention that we need to overlay on top of nature's intention. So, 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 uh, and I love the way that you introduced the, the aloha. It's kind of living with that aloha spirit where where you are, instead of kind of creating some intention, instead it's syncing up with the intention that is already here that doesn't have to come from a mental place. Like there is an intention of my being here on this call today that is greater than anything that my own ego could generate. There is an intention that is bringing us all here together right now that is that is also greater than any one of us individually could create in our own conscious mind so so the intentionlessness is really just a surrender to the greater intention that is animating life and trusting that direction and showing up with full presence to participate with that direction that is so well said. It's that showing up, being in the now. Uh, yes. uh, this is that business of quieting the mind is how I uh, interpret it. Is yeah. that, that when he was talking about doing the watering, just the joy of being in there doing the watering, not thinking I need to go in there and pay the bills or when I finish this, I'm going to go and beat up so-and-so or whatever the ridiculousness right. is that runs through someone's mind. Right. But to be here now, to be present, 
Yes, absolutely. In, in that breath. And, and as you say, because that intention has greater meaning than what we may perceive. I yes. really... And, and I want to speak to some of the sort of um, the natural opposition or pushback or a devil's advocate kind of uh, thinking around that, because some people would say, well, if I'm intentionless, then what am I going to get done? I need to, I need to know what direction I'm going in. I need to have that idea. I'm not going to be able to get anything done if I'm intentionless. But that is still more of the mind just creating the story. And uh, I've had I've had clients who have gone through periods where they realize that their whole reality that, that they are living in is an illusion and that everything that has driven them up until this point from that place of mind has been nothing more than an illusory framework of, of consciousness. And then they go, well, what now? Like, do, do I just, you know, hang out and eat Cheetos all day? Like, what, where's the driving force? And I say, well, you're still at a, a level where you need to tap into a deeper place inside of yourself because the driving force can then come from the Tao versus coming from a mental construct. So there can be sometimes a sort of a listlessness or a, a fear that sets in. Like if I'm not who I think that I am and I'm not living life from this intentional place, then who am I and what do I do? Well, that's just a layer. There are layers beyond that where you're, you're not going to become more lazy. You're not going to become more listless. You're actually <laughs> going to become more inspired because you're inspired by presence. You're inspired by life force and breath versus doing this sort of chastising type of, ah, if I just beat on myself enough and just instill enough fear and comparison and judgment inside of myself, then I'll get the motivation to get the thing done. That sounds like a miserable life to me. I don't want to live like that, but yet so many people are living like that. So how I'm being inspired is tapping into the life force versus coming from sort of some mental construct. And the, from that emptiness, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So that vacuum gets filled with inspiration from presence, from a divine presence versus from this sort of motivational, you know, comparison-based judgmental crap that most people are used to. It's, again, that whole idea of being in the now and expecting the unpredictable good. Mm -hmm. And within our use of translation in RHS, this is what we tell everyone. Don't structure what the outline is going to be. Let the unintentional good come forth. Yeah. And then you can always be exploring and playing with the mystery and the magic yes. versus create having some overlay of, of the you that keeps on, you know, that you thing, that, that me thing that keeps on trying to overlay itself on top of my life is a drag. It's like, <laughs> it's like a little kid hanging on and go, but wait for me, wait for me. Wait for me. I want to say, I want to do this. It's like, shut up, shut up. Just let me be. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> because that beingness can take you into realms you never thought. But it is being open and curious because this is what you had said earlier about uh, children is that loss of curiosity, that loss of how does this work? You know, they'll take something apart and just see they're in that now, whatever that situation is. And yeah. that's the whole thing. Uh, how often are we there that we really want to see what that is about? And, yeah, and, and as we spend, our, we spend our whole lives trying to get it back through money and status mm -hmm. and all these things that the ego will find all of these ways of trying to compensate for that loss of freedom and yeah. saying, okay, well, if I have enough money and if I have enough this and if I have enough that, then when I retire, then I'll be able to experience that freedom again. It's like bullshit. There is, there, Absolutely. I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. We, we use profanity. We have to practice in every moment by dropping into that place of uncertainty and childlike wonder. Wonder implies uncertainty. Wonder implies we don't know, but the, the known world, it's like we're terrified of, of letting go of the known world because we think the known world is something worth holding on to and grasping, but it's not. It, and it's a complete illusion. Might as well just let it go and just be with the wonder. And um, I think people get afraid that they're just going to completely lose it if they let go completely. But in fact, you find it when you let go completely. I um, have recently been working with a group that uh, is about to publish a book. And within that, if you would have asked uh, many of them when they started, oh, are you a writer? They would have said, hell no. <laughs> But it is, they were willing to go with it, to, to explore, to see, to take that risk, to jump. Mm. Uh, and that uh, some will say that I pushed them off the ledge, but no, I just there and just clang, went boom. <laughs> Well, what? we all need someone to help to give us that encouragement to take that that movement. That sure. is that is the importance of of mentorship uh, or or coaching. I don't. Um, I think of um, Oprah Winfrey, who always says she has five or six coaches or mentors. You can't do it on your own. And that is the importance of surrounding yourself with the individuals that that will support you in what you need and that will also call you on your bullshit. Yeah. Because it, because when you're with the individual you want to have that deep conversation that goes deeper than just what uh, appears um let's say that first comes to you that says, "Oh well, this is what we need to do and blah blah blah" and, and then you're going, "Well, do we have any research on that? Do we, have we done anything on that? Have we really looked at that? Are we, are we excited about looking at that? Or are we just going to go with whatever's on the top of our head? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and we see this all the time. Yeah. Be yeah. And that is that. And then when you're in community or communing with individuals, then that is that other challenge for 
that bigger picture of whatever the group decides to see the truth within that. Yes. That, yes. that as individuals, as companies, as corporations, as countries, as whatever, there's these kinds of identities that we fall into. And yes. what we want to do, and that's the challenge, is to see beyond the veil. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, and, and the term sensei, you know, is used is widely in martial arts. And, yes. and, and it, it, it literally means one who has come before. Yes. And, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't imply any sort of judgment of better or more right or whatever, anything like that. It's just simply implies a level of experience that the, the teacher embodies that or the coach embodies. And the, it's, I, I love that term sense. I do it's, too. It really, it, it really imbibes something. And I think that the yeah, people, and this is true for me as much as it is for anyone else. I have had to feel a resonance with others who, and then there's been so many, a number of different mentors, not necessarily, you know, there's some been who have been career based or some been health based, movement based, healing based. Then there's some who uh, aren't even really focused on a particular type of mentorship. Like, for example, when I was first paralyzed uh, for the first few weeks, it was like, really, I just did not have any clear understanding of uh, what you know this new life would, would look like. And then about a month after the injury, I met a, an actor. His name's Mitch Longley. He was in a number of soap operas. It's a really handsome guy. He was 34 years old at the time. He'd been paralyzed for 17 years. So he had had his injury when he was 17. Good looking, smart, functional, emotionally down to earth. He had all of these attributes that I looked at and I, and suddenly my body felt a resonance like, ah, okay. I can feel my own version of that now. Yes, I can see where he has the same condition and now he's doing something that gives me trust that I can do the same myself. So he wasn't trying to be my mentor, mm -hmm. but he was just by who he was. I think we all have people like that in our life. And that is the important thing. It's not what you say, it's what you do. That's right. And that is so important. And when we're talking about what we're doing, it's so many times individuals will say that they are using whatever uh, spiritual techniques they are. But then you look at them and you're going, I don't think so. <laughs> because if so, how in the world is that coming out of you? You know, so it is that situation of, of, using our techniques, not only when we feel that they're in trouble, but mm. we use them as part of our daily practice, as much as our breathing in and our breathing out, that it should be part of who we are, whatever that routine needs to be. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we're all practicing right now. Yeah. Everything that we are doing is practice, however yeah. we are doing it. 
So there's never a time that, you know, it's like meditation sitting on a cushion for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's a practice, but what's it a practice for? It's a practice so we can be doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that, that um, I like the saying where it says, as above, so below. If we understand that we are consciousness, conscious of consciousness, we are bringing that active of that higher self into that uh, everyday situation, that there is no, no difference, that it then becomes that balance. Mm-hmm. 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 Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the balance is always something that must be found anew in each moment. Each moment has a intimacy, I think. And I think that a lot of times individuals are afraid to be quiet with themselves, to hear the noise that is coming from them. And then to question it and say, hmm, well, that might not be right. <laughs> um, it's, um, there was a, a, a saying that I saw a while ago where it says, um, oh, what was it? Um, um, I'm uh, um, a CEO of my life. And if you see me talking to myself, just uh, ignore it because I am having a manager meeting, a management meeting. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that, that situation of that, yes, we need to have that unison of the body, mind and spirit. Yeah, yeah. The the CEO uh, uh, metaphor I, I like a lot. I frequently use a metaphor in my coaching practice around being both the actor and the director and the screenwriter simultaneously. Because mm-hmm. if we are just the actor, the actor is meant to not know what the environment is going to create for them. And they are meant to be in the drama and the adventure of life in that place of the unknown. And then, but then there is also an aspect of our consciousness that is the director that is looking from the outside at the actor and making suggestions about how they might handle a scene to be in the most empowered state that they can be in. So they are giving that actor advice and there's the screenwriter who has actually written the entire thing we could look at that as god the universe the cosmos knowing that we are actually participating on all three of those levels simultaneously um you know most people remain in the level of the actor itself (laughs) so they're constantly being brought in different directions by feelings. And then then the feelings then create a drama in the mind to try to interpret the feelings, et cetera. 
But if we get that we are all three simultaneously, then we can both be in the drama and the uncertainty of our lives, be in the feeling, and then give ourselves direction from the director's chair, and then also connect to the more cosmological understanding that is, is largely unconscious, but we can start to tap into that a little bit more as we develop that, that greater sense of presence. In a technique that we have that's called releasing the hidden splendor or RHS, one of the requirements of that technique is to set up the observer as um, in the biblical term, um, Joseph above Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. It is that understanding of that consciousness, conscious um, um, writer, director that says, okay, here's your chance to, to uh, run the rushes on what we've already seen. And maybe this time you might wanna do blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> or that you understand the scene more wholly so that when you go through it again, that then uh, you're not caught off guard, that you know what is going on because life seems to be cyclical. <laughs> Keeps repeating the same basic lessons over and over again. Yeah. And if we can really we can really start to hone down some of the more fundamental lessons that it's teaching us and get that there is only a certain, there's, to me, there's a certain relief in that, in knowing <laughs> that the, you know, I don't have to learn everything about everything. I'm, I've learned this one little part that's unique to my own personal experience but it's going to keep coming up. It's going to keep irritating me and frustrating me over and over again until I actually learn that one piece. Absolutely. But once I learn that one piece, then I'll be ready for another piece to come in and then look at that. And the, or it might be, yeah, cyclical is, is absolutely the way to describe it. It's life is occurring as a spiral dynamic versus as the linear progression. Yes. And yeah. so I, I think it's just so wonderful. Um, I really enjoy our conversation today. So again, uh, uh, we've gone over and that, but I want to thank everyone for yeah. being here. Uh, Sam, you were just tremendous. I enjoy our conversations. I enjoy our just being in each other's presence when we do get that. And yes, we will be in touch in regards to maybe setting up something of, about that because I yeah. think that would be wonderful.